Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Joseph DiNardo. Joe is the CEO, director, and founder of Council Financial, a highly specialized commercial lender offering loans and credit lines to law firms. Prior to founding Council Financial in the year 2000, Joe practiced mass tort and personal injury law for over 26 years. He's a graduate of State University of New York at Buffalo Law School and has been featured several times in Best Lawyers, the oldest and most respected peer-reviewed publication in the legal profession. Joe has recently released his first book, A Letter to My Wife, which follows his journey with late wife Marcia from cancer diagnosis through death. His practice of mindfulness is explored through this heartfelt dedication and serves as the foundation for recommendations on coping with loss and healing. His story, which includes both practical advice and profound wisdom, is a real-life example of how powerful and guiding meditation can help how powerful and guiding meditation can be during life's painful and challenging chapters. Welcome, Joe. No, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you. Glad to have you. And I want to say um, one thing that I, I do really appreciate about your book in terms of its usefulness to grievers is that it's concise, it's short, uh, because and also that it's personal, because I find, at least for me, I could not focus in deep grief on uh, really long or complicated writing. <laughs> I, <laughs> and, I, and I also really resonated with, um, with memoir and stories as a way to, um, to support myself. So I appreciate that in your book. Well, thank you. Um, you know, the, the idea of the book was never an idea for a book. It was really the eulogy that I read for my wife, which was, in fact, a letter to my wife that I was writing right within days of her passing away. Uh, and I decided to read it as a eulogy um, at her funeral. And then so many people afterwards, friends and family, kept asking me for a copy of it. Uh, and then people who hadn't even been at the funeral were asking for it. I thought, you know what, maybe I should put this into something a little more than just my, you know, handwritten and typed notes. And that's how the book came about. And as I slowly put it together, took on a little more uh, shape and form. I had some assistance uh, from people who I love and cherish uh, dearly for the assistance they gave me. And then Amazon um, decided to publish it and put it on Amazon.com. So it's sort of taken on a life of its own that was never anticipated by me when I first did it. You know, Joe, that's such a familiar story with the people that I interview on this show, of which there have been, you know, close to 180 at this point, the sense of something taking on a life of its own and uh, be le- being less driven by a sort of goal um, and more kind of evolving out of our own experiences so that that really resonates with what I've uh, noticed you know interviewing all these people after loss well and, and the other thing is you know I don't consider myself a writer and I'm a big reader I mean I read three or four books at a time all of the time and I just enjoy it immensely um, but I don't consider myself a writer and I know that a lot of people nowadays, especially those who might be dealing with grief, would find it difficult to sit down and read a 250-page or 300-page book. Um, and thought, maybe we could say, maybe we could say, for many, impossible. 
Right. So I, I thought keeping the book down under a hundred pages, you know, might make it more accessible and and more you know, attractive to look at, and um, I didn't, I feel I conveyed the message that I felt I wanted to convey um, in a very short number of pages. So let's let's fill people in a little bit on the story of you and Marsha and and Marsha's illness and death. I've, I feel in a way I don't, I, I wouldn't want to just skip to her illness and death because what's so clear in the book is the connection you had, the relationship you had, and probably still have, but we'll get into that later. Um, could you tell uh, the, the listeners a little bit more about your marriage to Marsha and, and where you were before uh, her diagnosis? <clears throat> uh, we started to, she worked for a friend of mine who owned a residential home building company and she was the director of uh, production and so when I would call for him she sometimes and oftentimes would answer the phones Um, and you know I was single I knew that she was single we had met each other mm, briefly at some point but we started to speak in the phone we started to have flirtations on the phone and then I simply said one day you know how would you like if we just met for lunch and she said, yeah, I'd do that. And we did. And I can tell you from my end of it, you know, I was head over heels in love with her, you know, before the salad came. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that from her response in the conversation uh, and the energy that we shared over that hour and a half or so, that she was having a similar experience. Um, we dated for a while. Uh, you know, quite some time. She wanted to have children. I already had a son from a prior marriage. Um, And then we just said in the year 1999 that we had been dating for a number of years and were very, very much in love. And we just enjoyed each other's company so immensely and made each other laugh and made our friends laugh when they were with us. Um, And she was just a magnet you know, for to light up a room in a sense. Um, so we got, we're both Italian, come from big Italian families. We had a lot of cultural, you know, things together. Uh, as you grow up in an Italian family that, you know, suddenly you meet someone else whose family does it the same way. And all those things just click, click together. Uh, and so we were married in 99 Our daughter came along in 2000, uh, Juliana, and, you know, she was, Marsha and she were tied at the hip. I was sort Mm. of tied at the toe, or on the toes somewhere. I don't know. I I never got tied. How come the husband and the father never get tied at the hip? (laughs) I don't know. I've seen it happen. but (laughs) But anyways. It I like one- that, though, tied at the toes. That's very good. Yeah. It makes me think of those pictures of a parent and a kid with the kid standing on the parent's foot and dancing. <laughs> uh, uh, and so it was a, It was a, just a wonderful, you know, it was just a wonderful relationship. And I, ha- I have to say that in all the years that uh, we spent together, um, I never woke up a day and felt, that I wasn't happy to be married to her. Doesn't mean I wasn't mad at her sometimes. I was. Right. You know, it doesn't mean that we we disagreed on some things. We did. Um, and, you know, it, was, it wasn't a perfect relationship, but I think I might have used this phrase in the book. I felt it was perfectly imperfect. And, you know, so, but I never, ever had the feeling that a lot of people in relationships sometimes do, which is, oh, my God. What am I, I can't, I, this is not right. I can't wait to get out of it. I hate him or I hate her. I never had those feelings. I just, if I was angry with her, I told her I was angry with her and why I was angry with her. But I never, ever was, was ever doubtful that I was happy to be married to her and be with her every day. You know, I, I've, I've been blessed to have that experience twice in my life. 
um, with my wife who died and with my current wife. And it's quite remarkable. I, I've had a lot of the other kind of relationships <laughs> before <laughs> that. we all. We but are. I don't. I I can't imagine ever accepting that again. Being in a relationship that I woke up thinking, "Why am I here?" Right. Uh, so that oh. really resonates with me. That that uh, boy, you'll do a lot for that kind of connection, won't you? Right. And then, so interestingly, in in the first the first five years of our marriage, of course, we had been together a good five years before that. Um, you know, I was extremely healthy. My wife was extremely healthy. Um, and, you know, she uh, had an aversion to hospitals or seeing people, you know, somebody could got a cut or bleed, even even a little cut. She just didn't like all that. It made her all, it made her nervous. And we used to joke about, uh, you know, someday, you know, if she would ever have to take care of me, and she would say, well, I, you know, she would see a couple, a wife pushing an elderly husband in a wheelchair. She said, that's where I draw the line. I'm never doing that. Things, just joking about <laughs> each other. And then Good luck getting out of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess she We returned home that, huh? in the year 2005 from a two-week vacation to Italy, during which I had little time to, you know, do like any physical training, which was something that was a big part of my life. And we got home on a Saturday, and uh, the next day, Sunday, I have a little gym in my house. And I said, you know, I'm going to go downstairs and just, you know, sort of fool around the gym for an hour. No problem. I went downstairs to the gym. I'd had uh, migraine headaches for 25 years at that time uh, and had been in and out of emergency rooms as a result over the course of those decades. But while I was lifting what I considered to be a very modest amount of weight, my head suddenly exploded, an experience I'd never had before, not with a migraine, not with anything. I couldn't talk. I could barely breathe. Um, Mm. I was nauseous almost passed out. My son came running over. He was in the other room. They got me upstairs. I passed out in the bed. When I woke up, I was just woozy and sort of out of it, but the pain was primarily gone. The next morning at the office, same thing happened again about nine in the morning. Boom, my head exploded. So they rushed me to the emergency room and, uh, you know, they asked me what few questions I could answer, but I told them I had been treated for migraines before. So they gave me, hooked me up to an IV to hydrate me and to also give me, I guess, Demerol or morphine or something by IV. And, you know, 15 minutes later, you're in la-la land. And it's like you didn't have a headache, you don't have anything. <laughs> and that's what, my, that's what was my experience. Yeah. But a friend of mine who's a judge was there with me and he insisted that they give me a CAT scan, which I'd never had one. And the doctor said, we don't give them CAT scans. It's not the protocol, Judge. And they knew him because he was on the board of the hospital. And the judge was very insistent. I don't know why, what moved him. But anyways, long story short, they gave me a CAT scan. And then while we were waiting for him to come over with the film, my wife showed up, my cousin, my brother, and they were all around my bed. I was feeling fine because they had shot me with the whatever, morphine or whatever. And the doctor walks over and says, yeah, Joe, here, I see your problem. He said, you have a large tumor on the right side of your brain and it spirals down into your, your this, the uh, base of your skull. I go, what? I mean, he said, What yeah. a shock, huh? Yeah. He said, that's the cause. He said, the, the tumor itself, isn't your problem. Of course it is, but the tumor that it spiraled over the course of years that has grown slowly into the base of your skull, which is what they call a very elegant area, very little room, but it controls your sight, your hearing, your breathing, a lot of like fundamental things. Mm-hmm. So that was why I had these, what they call a thunderclap headache. And he said to me, you need to see a neurosurgeon. I said, okay, you know, when I get to the office tomorrow, I'll make some calls. He says, no, Joe, you need to see a neurosurgeon today. I'll have an ambulance outside. What hospital do you want to go to? So 
within a day or so, I realized that I was confronting my own mortality because the doctor said that the surgery not only could, in fact, I would come out of it deaf, possibly blind, a number of, you know, like a palsy on the right side of my head, face, um, or not come out of it at all. Real watershed moment. It was a watershed moment for me, and and I'll tell you why it was. At that time, I had already been practicing Vipassana, mindfulness meditation for 30 years. And I had been to numerous courses around the country, India. Uh, I had learned from some of the finest teachers, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, who are now lifelong friends of mine, um, Sharon Salzberg, Mm -hmm. Munindra Anagarka, Munindra and I had become very, very close friends. Um, And so I felt I had a strong practice of mindfulness, of of just sort of letting things, you know, come and go without adding to them, without trying to deny them. And I wondered, because I was brought up Catholic in a Catholic grammar school for nine years. We went to church six days a week. And uh, for six or seven hours every day, they pounded into your head, you know, all of these uh, concepts. And it had taken me some 30 years to try to untangle those concepts, to, to, to disengage from them so that I could actually view reality free from some preconceived notions. And, of course, and so- the practice of my... Uh, It's it's about time for a break, Joe, so we're going to have to come back to that, but uh, I'm completely intrigued about letting go of Catholicism and using mindfulness to be with things. So let's come come back to that as soon as as our break is over. I'll be here. (laughs) All right. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, like me on Facebook, etc. And to find Joseph DiNardo, go to a letter to my wife.org. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. 
Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Joe Nardo, the author of A Letter to My Wife, written about the illness and death of his wife, Marsha. And Joe, before the break, you were talking about your own, uh, I guess we could call it a brush with death, and how your meditation practice intersected with that experience. And you also said you you kind of had spent 30 years recovering from um a Catholic upbringing. So can you say more about those two things and how they intersected at that moment? Well, as, as I grew as an adult and as I began to practice the Pasana meditation when I was about 26 years old, um, I began to recognize how often in my practice these preconceived Catholic concepts kept creeping into my ability to see reality more clearly. Mm-hmm. And not to say that those concepts are necessarily bad or, or you know, necessarily, I'm not making any judgment. I'm just saying as far as my own path was concerned, I wanted to get myself back to neutral. And the practice was instrumental uh, in doing that. But as with all things, you never know until you're tested to see whether or not you've made certain changes in your life. Absolutely. So the moment that the doctor met with me privately and told me about the tumor and the dangerous uh, spiraling down into the base of my skull aspect of it and the surgery and so on, I had about five or six days before the actual surgery because they wanted me to take steroids that would shrink the tumor before the surgery. And during that time, I I said, wow, I'm actually confronting for the first time my own mortality or the unknown of what's going to happen even if I I should survive the surgery. What what might I be like? And I questioned and asked myself, I wonder how you're going to handle this, Joe. I wonder if at the last moment when they're wheeling you into the hospital room, you're suddenly going to pull out your rosary beads or you're suddenly going to start to pray or are you going to stay mindful and be in the moment, stay with your breath, allow things and emotions to rise and pass away. And I didn't know. I have to say, honestly, I, you know. <laughs> you couldn't be sure, sure, huh? <laughs> you know, uh-huh. until they close that closet door and it's pitch black, you really just don't know what you're going to do when you're in there. So True. I, as they wheeled me into the operating room, I recollect being, staying with the mindfulness, staying in the moment as best I could, staying with whatever emotions arose. And there, there were a lot of them. And then I remember nothing. Um, the next thing I remember, I opened my eyes and the doctor was leaning over the bed. And uh, I looked up at him in my heroic, my most, my most heroic voice and said, I'm ready. He says, you're ready for what? He says, I'm ready for the surgery. He <laughs> said, Joe, we already, surgery's over. <laughs> the joke's on you, Joe. <laughs> It was five hours of surgery, Joe, and you came out. I think all your fingers and toes are working, and I don't think you have palsy. I said, it's over. But the good news was really the big news for me, besides being alive, uh, which was in itself big news. The big news for me was that I didn't go back to that old comfort zone. It wasn't there anymore, that comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I felt I had entangled myself from whatever preconceived notions I had about uh, life and death and uh, what the next steps would be and whether I would approach it as an adventure or out of fear or whatever. But I, I, I did exactly what I was, my response was, I was hoping it to be, and that is I was able to stay in the moment uh, until I lost consciousness. And I was, you know, I didn't say this to the doctor, but I was like, wow. I, I, I was pleased that, that that was the case. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. 
The other thing I wanted to very briefly mention is that during this period of time and subsequently during my recovery, my wife, who everyone thought she would have nothing to do with the bandage wrapped around my head and the blood that showed and you know all the things that go with recovery, she was a warrior. She put all of that aside, her discomfort, whatever, and she was there with me all of the time, and she rose to the occasion in a fashion that only made me love her more if that was even possible. Well, that's uh, another—that's a test of a relationship, too, isn't it? It you know, really is. And that, I, I gained a whole new level of respect for her as a person, as a wife, as a friend, as a caregiver, whatever. She was, it was wonderful. You and know, then, of course, we had both, normal vicissitudes of life, you know, over the next course of the next decade. And then in 2013, I came home from a two-day trip to New York. And, you know, how are you, sweetheart? She says, I've had a stomach ache for a couple of days. Feel my tummy. It's hard. And I did. It really was rock solid. And she was the healthiest thing in the world. And I said, well, you know, let's, whatever, who knows what that is. And the next day she she got a rash and started scratching herself. And again, we weren't overly alarmed. But on the third day, she woke up, I woke up, and she was jaundice. So we immediately called doctor. The doctor said, you must, it must be gallstones. Very quickly, I'll say it wasn't gallstones, and it turned out to be a diagnosis of stage four pancreatic cancer. You know, um, I I I um, I want to have you read some from your book right now because I don't want to lose the thread of the mindfulness because it shows up even though you're not talking directly about mindfulness. There's a couple of passages in your letters to letter to her that I think capture your, capture your presence. And I wonder if we could go there now. Um, the, there's a few paragraphs at the beginning of your letter, and then, right, a few okay. later, and then one later on, or a page later on. Let's, let's share that with the readers so they can get a sense of, of really where you got to with her. Okay, so th- this is the actual letter, or part of it, that I had, was writing to my wife. My dearest love, I write this letter tonight on tear-stained paper. My heart lies in pieces on our bedroom floor, but I want to share something with you before you go on your journey. How or why this happened, I don't know. What I do know is that I love you so desperately that the thought of you not lying next to me ever again is almost too painful to consider. Watching you suffer and endure one treatment after another, seeing you ravaged and unable to eat for months, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. But nothing compared to what you went through, my love. I know that. And I knew this day would come, though you never allowed me to really believe it. I begged and prayed that you would never leave me. Yet, here I am, holding your hand, surrounded by family and you slowly slipping away, breath by breath. How do you look so beautiful, even as you start to drift away? I kneel before you, asking for one last sign that you're okay, but you're not here, and oh, how my heart breaks into pieces. Me? We promised each other that we would always tell the truth, so no lies now. I am not okay, and never will I be okay. Okay is coming home from work, lying on the couch with a glass of wine and watching you glide around the kitchen, working your magic, preparing dinner. Okay is going out to Hutch's or Giancarlo's for dinner and just talking and sharing for hours. Okay is taking one of our trips to Naples or another far-off city you scouted with the whole family or with our dear friends, Chris and Andrea. Okay is holding each other in an eternal embrace, loving so hard that tears flowed from our eyes. Okay is here, you here with me. That is okay. 
so I'm not okay. But I will be here for Juliana, our vast array of friends and our families, and I will be fine. Maya Angelou wrote, They will never remember what you said. They will never remember what you did. But they will always remember how you made them feel. And Marsha, how you made us all feel. Your smile, your sparkling eyes, your pure pleasure in family and friends. You made each and every person that knew you feel a real connection, genuine affection, and true acceptance without judgment. Your posse of girlfriends near and far, I marvel at how you made every friend feel so loved, how you reminded each one that she had a special bond with you. I'll never know how you did it, and they will each miss you in their own way. The reason that really touches me is that um, I've known people um, in my life who kind of avoid the feelings with uh, practice, um, kind of use it to just have the good feelings, (laughs) as it were, which I don't think, for me anyway... um, what mindfulness has done for me is help me be with the hard feelings much more, much more um, openly. To be more comfortable and, with the hard, right. Yeah, yeah. They come, they go through, they depart, you know. Um, and, and I feel that those parts of your book capture that, that, that the fact that you've done decades and decades of mindfulness practice doesn't mean you aren't going to feel all the feelings. In fact, possibly uh, your capacity to feel them intensely is part of it, too. Do you think? I do. And, and, and uh, you know, I think that when, it, it, it's an odd thing to say, but sometimes having a great tragedy in your life can be a, an opportunity as much as it is a tragedy, can be an opportunity to build character and to allow the tragedy and the sadness to be a building tool for who you are and who you can become and what you can offer to the world. Because most of the people that offer the most to the world are people who have often suffered greatly and learned Indeed. from their suffering. That's the key, isn't it? Learning from the suffering. Um, it is. You know, I, I, uh, what I'm resonating with, because we've both, you know, lost spouses, uh, is a feeling that I had that I recognize in you of, um, I don't have any doubt about myself that I can, you know, I certainly don't want to do that, but I can, and I know I can. Right. And. The way you were talking about uh, not really knowing for sure what your what your uh, deepest response may be to tragedy in your life, um, and your and your uh, brain mass and your wife's illness and death, uh, you you confirmed for yourself what your baseline response is. You, you know, Shelley, it's interesting because the the the, the story about the um, brain tumor was where I confirmed for myself that the practice was in fact deep and profound, and had in fact changed me in a great in a, in, in a deep way. I had no doubts after that about the practice and and the what the arc of my life was going to be. Um, when the diagnosis of Marsha's uh, stage four pancreatic cancer was was verbalized to us, at that moment, um, it was be- I I was completely infused with a sense of fear and and again of losing this person, which. You know, and it was, uh, it was a, I just felt that I knew that I was going to do that. And, and then I was also recognizing what it meant for her 
and what she was going to go through and what she was going to have to suffer from all that I had read and experienced. Um, and, uh, but I didn't have any doubts that I could do it. I was, I was just awash at that moment with an unconditional sense of love for her that I had never experienced before that moment, that unconditional mm. love, love, love for her. Yes. But let's, let's come feel- back and let, let's come back after the break. That's a good okay. place to take a break because we, we, we need to anyway. And, and uh, we'll come back in a minute and talk more about that. And listeners, you can go find me at, at uh, you know, Voice America, Good Grief Channel. Find Joseph DiNardo at a letter to my wife.org. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been speaking with Joe DiNardo, whose longtime meditation practice helped him through the illness and loss of his wife, Marsha. And before the break, you were talking so movingly about when your wife was diagnosed, you knew that you would see her through. You knew you weren't going anywhere. And you were filled with an overwhelming sense of love. And I'd like to pick that again, that up again, um, because uh, when I when I read that, it felt to me as if everything peripheral or superficial was stripped away in that moment. Is that how you experienced it? I did. There was no hiding from what the diagnosis meant uh, and the, the, the sheer ability to overwhelm you and to sap the life out of the person who's you know, suffering with the diagnosis. But I just want to say one thing. Sure, it wasn't just a sense of love that I had. It was a sense of unconditional love. In other words, it didn't matter to me from that moment on. It really didn't. Whether she loved me or not or was angry with me or not or how, what, whatever, I just knew I was going to, I loved her unconditionally. It didn't, I didn't need anything in response to it. It was a very unusual feeling. Um, and it had stayed with me for the next two years because, as you know, people going through chemotherapy month 
after month after month, and then radiation treatment, and then more chemo. They can become very difficult uh, because they're having such difficulties and are in constant pain and, uh, you know, it's a day-to-day thing. I mean, I, I remember uh, after Marsha's first chemo treatment, she actually didn't have a bad experience with the very first treatment. And yeah, it, it does kind of build up over time, huh? Yeah, it builds up. So the week after the first treatment, one night we were in bed alone, just, you know, sort of pillow talking and chatting. And, and all of a sudden, you know, she wanted to make love. And and I, I couldn't believe it, given that she was, you know, between chemo treatments. But at the end of our, our being together, we just both broke down and wept mm-hmm. for maybe 15 or 20 minutes because we both knew and it was the last time we ever made love together um, so you know the 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 hills and valleys of you know, people who have to suffer with diagnoses and grief uh, and watching someone you love go through, do the suffering, they're, they're suffering, and your suffering is different than theirs because you're watching them and you can't do anything about and it. Very helpless. Helpless is the worst feeling. Um, but I, I, I wanted to share before we run out of time, some of the, uh, in the book I list 10 or 12 takeaways that I had from um, my uh, two years of being caretaker, and I wanted to share a couple. By all means, I was just about to invite you to do that, but I I would like to say first, you're making me remember, uh, uh, not for the first time, uh, all those people that you're close to from meditation are, uh, we're all friends with someone very dear to me, Stephen Levine, and... um, we spent a lot of time with him when my wife was sick and I'm remembering him saying, and I'm remembering how he looked exactly when he would say it. Um, we're, we're learning to keep our hearts open in hell. Right. <laughs> what, a, what, what a perfect way to say it. And I'm it's not surprised it. that, I'm not surprised that Stephen was the one to put that sentence together. No, not at all. <laughs> it, it helped me a lot. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Beautiful. <laughs> so, yes, beautiful so beautiful. Thing. And he was so poetic in in his way of speaking that um, <laughs> it's nice to think of him. So yeah. let, let's let's share some of your uh, some of your takeaways from your experience. Okay. <clears throat> it is rarely the will that gives up first. Most often, the body, our machine, is the first to break down. It quits from exhaustion and often just the relentless pounding of chemo and other treatments. This does not mean that the aggressive treatment is wrong, only that it is difficult to endure. Often it leads to a cure, but not always, so choose wisely. Take five minutes each day for yourself. Sit quietly with eyes closed and tell yourself to relax. Be happy and be free from suffering. Give yourself some loving kindness and non-judgmental self-acceptance. Simple as that. None of us are perfect, but we can be perfectly imperfect. Accept yourself just as you are. I like the idea that God did not create the universe, but just became the universe. He, she, is everything and everywhere. We just need to be open to it. Thinking this way may be the most painful challenge you will ever endure, but it can also serve as an even greater opportunity for you to open and grow as a person and as a spiritual being. Never give up hope, but always know the worst may still come. If or when it is over, Do not be afraid to grieve in the way that you need to grieve 
not the way other people think you should be grieving. And lastly, remember, you can do this. I don't remember where I've heard it, but um, maybe many places is probably the truth. Uh, Our brains are wired for grieving. It's just that we stopped letting it happen. Uh, As a culture, we kind of started trying to get rid of it, but we can do it, can't we? We, we can do it if we let ourselves do it, yes. And I think the meditation practice, at least for me, and I think for many people, um, is the door that opens to let you do it. It's the tool that we need to disentangle the conditioning that tells us we have to get rid of suffering as quickly as it rears its ugly head, and we have to run from things that are unpleasant. Uh, we have to grasp onto things that we love and want to hold dear, when all of it is ephemeral. I mean, you, you, you can't get away from it and you can't hang on to it. Um, so we need the, the meditation practice, the mindfulness practice, is the tool that we need to learn to get back to neutral. To yes, be able and, to and, and, and I, I resonate that with that. And I've known people who have other tools. Um, for instance, my... My mother, who also died of pancreatic cancer, by the way, um, she was a very strong Christian. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. And she that gave her a way to be with the experience of dying that was quite profound to watch, even though my ways are not, not her ways. Um, that got her there. Um, and I don't mean that in the sense of um, kind of skipping over what was hard because she was going to be with God or something, but it kind of gave her a foundation to stand on while she was going through it. It was um, very, it impacted me a lot. So I do think people have different ways to get there for sure. Um, but I for, am, me, there, for me, for- there's been nothing like the sense of being able to just sit with what's happening. Thank you for Uh, saying that, because I think it's important for our friends and listeners to know, in all the meditation courses that I've sat for weeks on end, there have been rabbis, priests, nuns, Buddhist monks, you know, Muslims and Christians alike. This has nothing to do with religion. Right. Mindfulness practice is a tool that helps open us up. And if people make the conscious decision to stay with with certain religions and certain beliefs, that's fine with me. And I didn't mean it. I, ha- I hope I haven't conveyed the idea that I make any judgment about that. When, whenever I talk about those things, I was talking just about me and what worked for me. Yeah, um, for sure. But I, I, I got that. <laughs> so when someone yeah. like your mother, you know, uses or responds to her religious training with integrity and with honesty, that's a beautiful thing. And I, I, I think that's wonderful. I have no well, judgment. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because my, my father was a minister, um, but he was an agnostic. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> and agnostic, wait, 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 look, Cheryl. He was an agnostic minister. <laughs> he was. He said if I'd oh, been born great. in another culture, I would have practiced a different religion. Yeah, wow. I mean, he was definitely an agnostic. But um, it was compatible because he was a practicing Christ- Christian. He just didn't think that was the only way <laughs> there was. And, you know, they were true uh, to the principle of that religion, which is basically love. Right. Uh, of course, that's not what many people practice, but it is the basic heart of that religion. And uh, so I was lucky in that regard um, because they loved me through leaving their religion, for one thing, <laughs> and also through marrying a woman and all kinds of other things. Well, but, you know, from listening to you, you tell bits and pieces of your story, they gave you a, a, a wonderful foundation that allowed you to do whatever was the right way for you to 
I mean, that's wonderful. I mean, that's exactly perfect. And I and I'm I'm go, I'm going into my story a little bit, and we've gone into yours just to encourage people that whatever helps them to be really present with what's happening, it's going to help. And present, I mean, I sort of went past, you know, self-esteem building into true self-acceptance um, dealing with my what my wife's illness. Uh, I had to. I didn't. I couldn't afford all the all that other stuff. <laughs> Guess what? I, yeah. So, uh, and it sounds like maybe you too. Uh, well, I don't. You know, like the, the the reality for me was that you can't avoid. Pain and grief and suffering. It's just, it's just a interwoven into the fabric of life. You cannot avoid it. And the when we have difficulties comes about is when we try to avoid it. And it's like being in a you know the middle of a fast moving stream, and you're flowing along. But as soon as you try to grab onto a low, low hanging branch or a rock or whatever to stop yourself from being in the stream, that's when you get beat up by the stream as you try to hold on. You have to learn to let go and to be with it. It's not always pleasant. Um, but, you know, life life is neither, you know, doesn't have any, make any judgment. Life just is what it is. It's our response to life which determines whether we're happy or not. You're, you're really bringing Stephen to my mind a lot today. Um Always on the card that the little program we'd get at the workshops, on the back was um, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, sit, if, you, if you actually sing that song out loud and remember the, the words, they're very <laughs> profound. <laughs> well, Life is not a dream. Being mentioned in the same sentence with Stephen Levine is a complete honor, uh, and, I, and I appreciate you doing that. But uh, again, the fact that he would have that that song, you know, uh, it's just it's brilliant. I mean, of course, he's oh, it's brilliant, great, right? Yeah. Guess what? We're coming to the end of our time. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. Um, thanks so much. Keep me. Uh, you know, keep me informed about what you're up to because I have a feeling you're going to be up to a lot. <laughs> well, thank you. I've actually been invited on a number of occasions to speak about mindfulness practice and to teach mindfulness. So I'm and I'm happy to do that uh, at this point in and my life. So I'll keep you. I'll keep you posted. Wonderful. Thank you. Keep me updated. And listeners, next week I'll have Lucy Hone. Lucy's a resilience expert and is the author of Resilient Grieving, Finding Strength and Embracing Life After a Loss That Changes Everything. She wrote the book after uh, to, to after her daughter, her 12-year-old daughter, best friend and friend's daughter died in a car crash. And she brought her resiliency training into her grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.